I've been going here probably, what, seven years now, I think, attending and sitting often up there behind the Stevensons, enjoying fellowship in German every now and then. It's kind of a fun thing. And uh, I never really took much time to look at these windows, and um, they're really pretty. And, you know, sometimes you find some of those windows that are uh, individual pieces of glass, and, and then there's others that are painted and everything. And, and I, as I was looking at these, I started looking at the, the centerpiece picture, and I saw the sword, and I thought, my kids, that would be their favorite one. Because I can remember in Europe, when we were over there, everything was about soldiers and knights and all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, they would have jumped on that idea right there. And then there's the dove. And I was looking at trying to sort out, that, okay, that's the lamp of fire. I thought for a minute it looked like a genie's lamp. I thought, heck, it doesn't belong in the church, does it? And I was trying to sort that piece out. But I see it's a lamp, a lamp unto my feet. And as I was going along studying these and, and, and stuff, I realized, you know, look at all the footballs around. Look at <laughs> I had never noticed that before. Look at all those footballs. And then I thought, you know, there's that contemporary song that talks about, you know, in my father's house, there's a big, big yard where we can play football. And I thought, that's what that's all about, perhaps, you know. And I don't know. It was just kind of interesting. Then this organ. Isn't that huge? And it sounds so great. And I know God will provide us with someone else that will come along and sing, make it sing like this one does for us and has for the last several years. But how many pipes are up there? I, I, I count them every time I look at it. I get about 37, 50. I know there's more than that. There's got to be a few thousand in there probably. But they're so complicated, and it's an amazing thing. And then yesterday when I came along here, there were different flowers here, but now there's these. And these are pretty. And yesterday's were pretty. But you're, you're beginning to think, all right, Kevin, what are you doing? So, and I actually, I'm not really, t- I'm moseying is what I'm doing. I'm moseying my way up to the, the pulpit up here to share. And some of you are probably thinking, I hope he moseys the whole time so I don't have to listen to him ran on about whatever he's going to share. And uh, yeah, so I'm just going to grab this and move over there. But moseying, I wondered about those guys on the road to Emmaus. I don't think they were moseying. They were probably moving at a pretty, pretty interesting pace. Because they were fearful, perhaps, of all that took place. Their, their whole lives over the last three years, Cleopas and the other disciple, had been all about Christ and all that he had been teaching and showing and revealing to them and all the miracles and on and on and on. And they were convinced that Christ was going to come and, and turn the world around. And they had this vision, this idea of, of who he was, and it didn't happen. He was killed. And crucified, brutal. And there was a lot of confusion and disarray in those moments after the crucifixion. And Cleopas and this other guy headed out of town. Perhaps fear of their lives. Thinking if we're associated with this, they're going to take all of us. And we need to separate and create a little space between us and them. And as they're walking along and they're talking and reflecting and thinking about all the events that just took place... And, and confusion and misunderstanding and wondering, where do we miss this? What happened to this? Who was Jesus? We thought this and this and this happened. And as they went through it and did all this, along comes Christ and joins up alongside of them. And in Mark, it clearly does state that they were unable to see him because he took on a different form. So I was, at one time, I was even thinking they, they probably didn't recognize him just because they were so fixated on what they were doing that they, nothing would have mattered because they weren't looking for Jesus. He was dead and gone. 
There was no chance of finding Jesus. And so I don't even know if it would have mattered much had Jesus come in the way he looked. Normal. I don't know. Um, I just think they were so fixated on their issues and, and their concerns and stuff that it wouldn't have mattered. And I even think as they, as he intercedes and, and what are you guys talking about anyway? Who's this? What are you talking about? And they're like, who are you? you know, how, are you so foreign to what's been going on? You don't have a clue. And then they kind of go on in their rant with him. And then he comes back. And I, I really kind of believe right there in that moment, he, he slipped a little switch on. And he taught them from Moses right on through and talked about how it all pointed to him, the Christ. And they still weren't seeing the deal. They couldn't figure it out. Why? Because they weren't looking for Jesus. He was dead. He was gone. And they walked on down the road and, and they were fascinated, even warmed, it says, when you look back at the end of the passage, about this entire process as they walked with Jesus, not knowing who he was. And when they got to Emmaus, he started to continue on down the road. But they, hey, no, 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 no. Come on, join us. Come on over. We got some food. We'll get out some beans and whatever. We'll sit around a campfire and enjoy. And so Jesus joins them. And then it says he broke bread. Max Licato makes this comment. He wonders as, as if when he broke that bread and he reached out the hand to him, the nail piercings were there. And they recognize Jesus. I don't know. It's a fascinating thought, though. Whatever took place, I think one thing I get out of it is all too often I go through life missing out on so much because I'm not thinking about anything else. And I got this pace I'm going on and nothing else really matters in my life. So to help me a little bit today, I'm going to dig into one of these deep theological books by Patrick McManus. Anybody know who Patrick McManus is? Yeah? Copy yeah. What are you laughing about? Kid Camping from A to Z by Patrick McManus. It's right in there with my different books I have at the office. Moseying. Moseying. This is great. The hiker who moseys along will feel more, will enjoy more, see more than a whole herd of campers who go down the trail as if they were participating in a stampede. All of the great woodsmen and woodswomen that I have ever known, says McManus, were experts at the art of moseying. Here's how to mosey. So take notes. You take two or three steps, and then you stop, and you look around. You turn over a rock with the toe of your boot and check under it. Maybe you need some worms because you're going fishing. Or salamander, or just nothing. But you turn over the rock and see what's underneath it. You take a half dozen more easy steps and look around again. You hitch up your pants. And then you stroll about 50 yards or so. Stroll, okay, stroll. About 50 yards or so. And you stop and you take another casual look around. Maybe you even take your backpack off because it's getting awful heavy. And you set it on a log or a rock. You grab a handful of gorp. Snap a couple of pictures of the wildflowers that are nearby. Maybe some of the wildlife that you notice in the trees, birds, squirrels. And then you continue on up the trail at an easy pace for about 100 yards or so. 
where you stop again and you repeat the whole process all over again. Eventually, as you mosey down the trail, you will encounter the hikers who stampeded by you before. Be careful. Don't step on their tongues as you walk by. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's a great picture for me. Uh, this message is probably as... This is dangerous sometimes. But this message is as much for me as it is anybody else. Because over the last few years, I have wrestled with a pace that I've allowed myself to function at. I've just moved right on. A steady pace. And moved right along. And, and just gone. And I've moved from whether it's coaching or camps or vacation or church work or now over at the inn. I can do laundry like nobody's business. I'm getting the hang of this. It's, I actually enjoy it. I enjoy doing these things, but it's all a pace that's going the same speed, just going, 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 hardly slowing down to catch my breath. Noah Ben Shea wrote this. Noah Ben Shea. He says this. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. He went on to say, rhythm is created with spaces. Without rhythm, music is a boring conglomeration of notes and words. Now, I could really step out on a limb here. I'm not going to do it because I want you to stay for the rest of the message. But I could try to hum, this is the day with no rhythm. And just, you know, I just throw the notes. But with no rhythm, I bet you couldn't figure it out at all what I was doing. The rhythm, the spaces between the notes enables us to recognize, oh, I know that tune. And you could even take this as the day and you could jazz it up a little bit, but we'd recognize it. You could slow it down and you could recognize it. When, when Eileen was playing uh, the song right there, uh, Blessed Assurance, when I first was listening to that, I thought, I don't, where is that? There it is. And I could hear it. It was there because there was rhythm. There was notes. And the space is needed between those notes Enabling us to make sense out of what is all there. And God created space. Take time to be holy. Take time to be holy. That's an interesting thought. Take time to be holy. Do we? Do we take time to be holy? I know I don't. I have not been taking time to. What does taking time to be holy really mean? Genesis chapter 1. I want us just to look there for a moment. God created us in his image and expects us and wants us to be like him. And so I'm going to read a little bit of the creation story. Because I think this is important for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, of the first day. God separated things out. He created space. And God said, 
Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the expanse and he separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Separation. Water. Sky. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters together. He called that seas. And God saw that that was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And on it goes. God taking time, creating space, separating things out, giving rhythm to the universe. Interesting thought. And it goes on to verse 31. Let's just kind of move forward to verse 31. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating, of the creating that he had done. God rested. He took back. Did did God need a break? Was he just, like, exhausted and tired? No. But he he needed a break, perhaps, because he wanted to see. He wanted to enjoy what he just did. And I think that's, that's the struggle. And, you know, I think every day in that creation, God took mini breaks because there was evening and morning of the first day and evening and morning of the second day and so on and so forth. And I even think even in between each of those days, God was taking a break and enjoying the work of that day and what took place. And I think that's something we wrestle with. I know I do. Here it is, middle almost the middle of August. And we have, not too long ago, finished a school year. And we finished with a flurry, the graduation, and all the, and then, then all these weddings that take place. And, and then this, that happens, and whatever. Then, oh, yeah, vacation. Got to squeeze a vacation real quick. And so we hop in our cars, and we drive off somewhere. And we call on, as we go down the road, we call in to make sure we get there in time before the inn closes or the hotel closes, la, la, la. And we go through that process. And then we race out in the morning because we got to get out because somebody else is coming to that room. And we even hurry through our vacations at times. And then all of a sudden, it's the middle of August, and school is getting ready to gear back up. Church is gearing up. You know, we just came through our Sabbath time, and now we're getting ready to incorporate the Sunday schools and various meetings on the 18th. I've got a meeting in the evening, and the various meetings are starting to pick back up. What happened to the summer? What happened to slowing down and enjoying something for a few minutes? I know I wrestled with it. And it's not all because I learned, I took on a new job. It's just because I chose to do that. I just chose to be busy and, and let life kind of dictate to me what's going on. 
We are created in God's image, and we need to realize how important it is that we, too, create space in our lives day to day, week to week, month to month, so that we can enjoy life to the fullest. That's what he wants. He designed us, created us in his image. He wants us to get the most out of life. And that is what God is all about. You say, well, I don't need space. I got to do this. I got to keep moving forward. And I guess my thought to that would be this. If God took time to stop and reflect on the things that he created, and I'm created in his image, then probably I ought to stop and reflect on the activities that I do. Maybe if I slow down a little bit at the end of a day and think about what I just did, I could actually think a little bit and say, oh yeah, okay, that went pretty good, and make notes so that tomorrow I might do the same thing. Or if it didn't go so well, maybe I need to adjust a little bit how I did what I did today and make an adjustment so tomorrow I can do it differently so that it might be more effective in my effort. Slowing down, taking time to take inventory of what transpired in that day. How important is that? Let's step back a minute for, uh, and look at the universe and the creation. This is starting to get a little beyond my capabilities here, but bear with me to, in my little rudimentary efforts here. But think about our, universe, or our galaxy, our area, the solar system. You got this big old sun. And there it is in the middle of our solar system. And you've got planets buzzing around, orbiting. I used a good scientific lingo, orbiting around the sun. And then you got moons going around the planets that are going around the sun as this all goes on. And interestingly enough, the gravitational pull of these bodies, these planets, is interesting. It's, you know, the bigger ones have more pull. The sun is huge and has a massive pull. And all these planets are pulling, being pulled by the sun as we are being pulled by the planets next to us. And that whole solar system is really a delicate deal. It really is. What would happen... If Star Trek took out Jupiter on us, gone, it would mess it up because all of a sudden Jupiter doesn't exist. It's not pulling or being pulled and it's going to mess up the orbital process of all the planets on the outside. All of a sudden those planets outside of Jupiter, whoa, and they're going to float away. And those planets on the inside of Jupiter are going to get sucked in. It's going to get kind of hot. It's all important. The space that God set in place for the solar system, just that little piece, is phenomenal. It's important. And so it is with us. Space in our lives, creating opportunity for breath. Think about campfires. I could have gone back to McManus here, but I don't want to use all the great teachings of McManus here. But think about a campfire for a moment. When you build a campfire, I bet we could get probably five, six, seven, eight different ways to build a campfire. But essentially, you got the teepees, you got the log cabins, you got the pile on, and you got little wood, big wood, you got all kinds of things. Some people will douse it with gas, not a good idea. Um, But they'll put some kind of flammable substance on it to help it get it started. But ultimately, once that fire is going, to keep that fire going, what do you do? You put more wood on. But you can't just throw wood on it, because if you just pile the wood on and just throw it on there, it's going to go out. You're thinking, what do you mean? Wood burns, right? No, fire is what's burning, and it burns the wood. And fire needs oxygen. And to have oxygen, you've got to create space between the little wood. And if you don't create space down there, it's going to burn itself out. 
And that's what's going to happen to us. If we don't create space, we're going to burn out. Sometimes we get somebody to come along because we're exhausted and they fan us. <laughs> and they give us a big burst of oxygen and we, ah, we feel energized for about a week. And then we burn out again. Because we don't take time to create space in our lives. It's essential that we understand the importance of, of taking time to be holy. So, how are we going to do that? How do we create space? Well, let's look at Christ. Um, a really good idea to do. And not Patrick McManus. Let's look at Christ. Um, turn with me, if you can. Um, Mark chapter um, 1, verses 35 through 37. I'm going to take a moment to look at this. Mark chapter 1. There we are. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I want to stop right there. I didn't know that back up there, when I was walking through yesterday, and just, what am I going to talk about when I mosey up here? I actually planned that. (laughs) I saw that this morning. It's a picture of Jesus in a garden. Gethsemane, maybe? But he's by himself. And God and him are in fellowship. And we know that Jesus took time to get away from the crowds. We know that in the last, right after the Last Supper, when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, in John, it refers to the fact where they often went. They, they didn't go. That wasn't like, oh, let's go. Uh, where do we want to go, guys? We've got to get away. We've got to get away. They knew a place that they had spent hours and hours before. Maybe in groups, talking, fellowshipping, praying, getting away from the crowds. Maybe they would come in and they'd fan out and get in little spots on their own. I don't know. But here's a case specifically that Jesus is getting out on his own. He's left of the disciples. And so it says again, I'll read it. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Duh. You think Jesus needed to be told everybody's looking for him? Why did Jesus go? To get away. He needed space. He needed to replenish. He needed a fellowship with God, the Father. And he was about that. And he was doing that. And then along comes the disciples. Hey, everybody's looking for you. And here's the best part of this little thing. They didn't, oh, wow, mercy me. Everybody's looking for us. Let's go back and help them. No. Look what it says. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. (laughs) I love it. Christ knows something that we need to understand. They're going to be okay. He's been interacting with these people. He's taken a break. He doesn't have to go back to them. God the Father, whom he's been communing with, will take care of their needs. He needs to go on to another spot and to reach out and to minister elsewhere, nearby. And so that's what he does, and he moves on. So I think there's something in it for us there. Secondly, another scripture, Matthew chapter 6. This will be a familiar one as well. And it's the do not worry passage. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 25 and read through 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, 
or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Hmm. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows that we need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So there it is. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Hungering and thirsting after him. Taking time to be holy. Taking time out of our fast pace and allowing ourselves to slow down, create a little rhythm in our life. You know, in athletics, it's, it's important. It's imperative. Just in the sport of soccer, you know, the World Cup just came and went. And you watch these athletes out there, and they can do magical things with the ball, with their feet, goalkeepers with their hands. But one of the things that is unseen and unnoticed that makes some of these people that are, all of them are just great athletes, and they can, they can dribble circles around me. They could just have a field day around me. But the ones, and they all could do it, but what separates a Messi from the others? Or what separates some of these Pele's and others and Franz Beckenbauer and so on? What separates them from the other great ones is their ability to change speed and pace and direction and still maintain the ball at their feet. We need to be able to change speed and direction and back up and turn left and go right and slow down and speed up. We need to be flexible. We just can't go, go, go. Because you'll just not get anywhere. In his book, Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to Culture of Now, Walter Bruegemann says this, God is not a workaholic. God is not a workaholic. God is not anxious, nor is his creation anxious. God is not like Pharaoh. What's that got to do with anything? It has a lot to do with things. You see, the Israelites had been in exile. They'd been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And all they knew was slavery and this lifestyle that was impressed upon them. But interestingly enough, that's what the, Is- or the Egyptians knew as well. They all worked. It was just everything was about building, 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 monuments, cities, towns, whatever it was. Even Pharaoh didn't really rest. He was busy kind of at what they can do next for him. And it was just everything was about getting the job done seven days a week. And if you didn't get the job done and you had to focus on this job. And if you didn't get this job done, you're in trouble. You're going to get punished. You may even get killed. 
because you're not doing your job. And that's, that was their lives for generations. And all of a sudden, along comes God, God the Father. He uses Moses, and he does these miraculous things, and he frees them, and they get across the Red Sea, and all this incredible stuff. And they're like, we'll follow God anywhere. And so they follow, and he leads them to Mount Sinai. And then off the mountain, Moses comes down, and they hear these Ten Commandments. Here's the new rules of the road, if you will. In the first three, we're talking about their relationship with God. And you could probably suspect there's a handful of things. Oh, here we go, another guy demanding that we do this, this, and this. But along about four and five and six and seven, the tone changes. It's not about God. It's about relationship. It's about each other, not stealing and not killing and not coveting and these things. It's about people, relationship with people. And then it comes down to remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And there's a really big detailed elaboration, more than any of the other commandments, about what that means. God knew we needed rest. He knew it. And here these Israelites were, after all these years of everything is about Pharaoh and Pharaoh wanted this and do that, and all of a sudden here comes God. And yeah, worship him, God alone, no other gods before me. But there was all this other stuff that allowed them to By focusing and trusting and loving God, they had relationship. And they began to enjoy life with this new creator. The one whom they had not known as God opened up their eyes. The other gods are agents of anxiety. But we, by discipline, by resolve, by baptism, by Eucharist, and by passion, resist such seduction, says Bruegelmann. In so doing, we stand by our creator in whose image we were made and say, if God can rest, so can I. If God can rest, so can I. So in closing, I think what I've gotten out of this idea of moseying, of strolling through life is that we need to learn how to take time to be holy. Look at Christ. Look at his life. And how he took time to be with God. God has demonstrated throughout history how important it is to him. How necessary it is for us to stop and enjoy the simple things of life. So that we can ultimately get the most out of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, oh, you love us. And you want us, God, to really enjoy you, enjoy life. God, help us to be willing to create rhythm, to slow down, to speed up, to take time and stop, to worship you, to allow you, God, to be our God, our Father, and to commune with you, and to allow you then to enable us to reach out to those around us. God, we thank you for this time, and and as we go forth today, may we be faithful to you, and allow ourselves to take the time to be holy. Amen.